0: Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn, and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Sean Bain from the University of Edinburgh. Sean is the director of Edinburgh's highly successful digital education research and teaching group. And In this conversation we cover a lot of ground, from Sean's writing on post-digital and post-human perspectives through to Edinburgh's groundbreaking online teaching philosophy. And We also brave the question of where the UK higher education sector might be heading in these post-Brexit times. So join us in a rather echoey side room in Oslo's Metropolitan University and first off I ask Shan why she chose digital education as her specific area of research.
1: because it's a very varied field of study, isn't it? It's very kind of interdisciplinary, I think. any any Working anywhere within education is necessarily interdisciplinary, and I think digital education in particular is interesting because also it's partly about the sort of temporalities of change mm. because if you're working in the tech area, change is rapid. Things are always moving on, um, or is in other parts of education, it's very steady and stable and ideas don't change that quickly um so i think i really enjoy that kind of almost like clash of temporalities it does keep it really interesting Wait, are you a techie i mean what's your background how did you yeah. come to e-learning i'm not a techie my first degree was in literature okay uh, and then i moved into my phd was kind of cross-disciplinary cultural studies and education so that was that's where i what i bring to it um and for me, I guess the question that keeps me most interested, well, there are two things. One is theorising and the, the theorising of digital education, I think, is really interesting because education generally is quite, you know, education practice generally is quite, quite resistant to, to theory, but some of the theories emerging through kind of digital thinking are fascinating um, and have so, so much to say about the way we do education um, that there's always something new kind of coming over the horizon to think about and to use and to kind of build provocations around so it's a fun
0: space to play in it's a, it's moving quickly there's a lot of chances for theory. I wanted to talk to you about your use of theory when you think about digital education I mean and in particular a couple of lines of thoughts that you've developed I and mean, one of the things that interests me is your emphasis on post digital education so I was wondering how are we post-digital? I mean, what does this bring to our conversations about e-learning and technology?
1: Mm. I'm not sure to what extent post-digital is actually a thing at the moment in education. I mean, it's a there aren't actually that many people writing specifically from a post-digital perspective. Again, I think education generally is quite slow to take up terminologies that have been around for decades in the case of post-digital coming from the kind of art theory, mm. arts theory. Yeah, so Nicholas Negroponte's take on this was way back in 1991, remember, and he said... Um, face it, the digital revolution is over.
0: And all that solid will melt into bits and all this <laughs> kind of stuff,
1: here. Yeah. Well, exactly. And at that point, it was already kind of becoming a little bit old hat to talk about digital as something separate from non-digital or analogue or everyday. Um, and now we see that even, even more in our kind of the ubiquity of our use of technology and the way it's woven into everyday life. But we still talk about the digital as though it's some kind of special use case sitting out here. So
0: it's not moving beyond the digital. It's just kind of acknowledging that the digital is a very mundane, everyday, glitchy part of life. And we need to think more more carefully about it.
1: I think that's right. And about the way in which we kind of, um, we, we still, I think, in universities, privilege presence. We privilege students who are on campus over students who are at a distance, for mm. example. We don't think deeply often about the kind of everyday digital practices of students and the high high mobility of students as they're moving around cities and working in coffee shops and coming into seminars in you know, via a Twitter feed or whatever. There are loads of ways in which univer- university students engage um, with their institution which don't involve kind of sitting in a room in kind of embodied co-presence with the teacher or with their peers. And we don't really think about that. We still use... Um, artifices like the idea of contact time Mm. as a way of organizing the academic year or online learning yeah that's right and we say oh, the online students are over here and the (laughs) on-campus students are here and actually that isn't the way that we're headed now i was going to
0: ask you what does post-digital kind of theory or the post-digital approach tell us about education these days so we've got those mobilities but what else
1: mobilities different kinds of knowledge practices different ways of building peer networks different ways of building kind of um i suppose pedagogic approaches that really make proper creative use of digital media Mm. and again universities anyway in general aren't that great at doing that kind of thinking I would say so there's a lot of work to do and I think that's what I find really exciting about this area is there's just so much work to do. And I'm fascinated
0: by your take on the kind of new materialities, but also the datification. I mean, I guess the post-digital pushes in in both those directions as well.
1: In a way, I'm not sure how useful post-digital is as a term for dealing with thinking about that stuff. You know, sometimes I think it's a bit of a, um, what's the word, a distraction. Um, You know, we love our posts, you know, Mm. and actually we can frame something as post-digital and as a way of kind of um, over-theorising it without actually thinking about the everyday impact of high levels of datification, creeping surveillance on campus, um, all the problematic ways in which we it's becoming normal to to profile, personalise and target our students. Um, so Yes, I guess post-digital does articulate some of that, um, but there are other discussions to be had which I think are more directly engaging with the really big challenges that are facing universities at the moment around the digital age and the normalisation of datafication.
0: Very little of which has anything to do with teaching and learning, but also to do with kind of the wider political economy and the wider kind of yeah, context within which education now takes place.
1: Yeah, exactly. And sometimes we, yeah, we we, we are generally quite good, I guess, at, th- at talking about teaching and learning and the use of technology within that. But we d- we neglect stuff like, um, you know, likelihood of some universities bringing in kind of um, emotion recognition and facial recognition and different kinds of what Ben Williamson calls. Brain scraping, you know, and that high level, of very intimate kind of datification that, you know, is happening and is being funded on a research level um, and is coming our way unless we in universities actually take us, st- are able to articulate a strong stance to say, no, that it doesn't work, that's not in accordance with our values um, as an institution of higher education yeah. or with our, our ideas of the universities as a social good. I think universities need to get way better at articulating that.
0: Yeah, and not be distracted by, as you say, computer science and psychology coming together. And you know, it, it's about values and about the mission of, of public universities. Mm. Now, I know you said we're, we have too many posts, but I wanted to talk to you about another post. I mean, you, you write also about posthumanism or transhumanism, and this whole area of thinking beyond the, the human digital um, kind of dualism. I mean, how's that work informed your, your thinking about e-learning?
1: I think thinking about posthumanism gives us a framework to. Um, to challenge some of the kind of unacknowledged truisms surrounding education that are really problematic. So when you say to someone you know, who's not involved in teaching or in higher education, what, what do you think education is for? M- most often they say, well, it's about fixing up students so that they can get a good job, or they say it's about um, enabling individuals to reach their full potential yeah. that age, over and over again. And I think what post-humanism helps us, well, the first of those points is highly instrumental the second one is highly kind of essentialist and i think it's that it's that essentialism that post-humanism helps us tackle we we'll say actually yes of course education is about helping people to to grow and to learn and to change and to become critical um, and to become citizens if you like in what, however you define that But it's not enough to say our job is to release that inner potential. Our job is to actually look at the kind of social frameworks that surround those individuals and understand how they create limitations on what that individual can achieve. Um, So it's really problematic if we see education as the means by which people become fully human, for example, or better humans. And I think post-humanism for all its um, problems and all its variety, because it is a multiple, it's multiple, isn't it? Um, it does ha- g- give us a framework for saying, actually, no, the human is multiply connected to multiple contextual, environmental, systemic factors, and we have to think beyond the innate human potential of students if we're going to do teaching and education properly.
0: But I was going to ask, how does the, your, your use of posthumanism humanism go down in education circles? Do these ideas actually kind of find a place when you talk to educators, when you talk to education researchers?
1: It's difficult. Increasingly, yes. I think there is a growing body of research in that area and practice. Um, but Helena Peterson's work is really useful in this regard, and she says, um, her, her most famous quote is something like, e- "Education has been that has had a kind of compulsory humanism attached to it because education is seen um, as a kind of liberating the essential human the human nature of all of us." And her work has systematically, from a perspective of animal studies, you know, kind of challenged that. So I think posthumanist approaches are seen as being on the margins still. But they're growing, you know, ironically, kind of the humanities are now kind of dropping post-humanism as a way of thinking about the world, whereas education is just picking it up. We're
0: always 20 years behind the we, curve. We
1: are, but I think in digital education, it's particularly useful because it asks us to think about how does technology actually sh- shift what it means to, to be human? What are the power dynamics that circulate through, you know, um, human subjects and technological objects? So, and, and so it... I think digital education is a good place to be and actually to think about post-humanism yeah it's a good
0: provocation that, talking about provocations one thing i always recommend people in their tech to check out is edinburgh's manifesto for teaching online mm. um but can you give me a potted history of this i mean what first prompted it and how has it since developed
1: yeah the manifesto for teaching online came out of a small internally funded research project which my colleague jen ross ran way back got into 2010 or something Um, And that was about looking at online assessment and feedback, ironically. And as one of the outputs of that project, we we thought, well, what should we write? We don't really write a a report, that's kind of a bit boring. Or make a website, that's also a wee bit boring. Um, Let's write a manifesto. And that kicked off a whole year of discussions among the team uh, of us who teach on our masters in digital education. Um, And we really had to bash out what we could collectively agree on as an underpinning philosophy for our teaching approach. Um, And in doing so, how could we sort of mobilize the research in digital education to make it accessible for practitioners? Uh, So that was really the driving idea behind the manifesto. The first one came out in 2011, and then we revised it for 2016. Um, And we've got a book coming out on the manifesto with MIT Press, in fact, this year, later this year, um, which will then lead into another revision of the manifesto, I think, next year in 2021. So that's, that's kind of the way it's unfolding. Whether there'll be any more beyond that, I don't know.
0: No, I mean, every manifesto is kind of a statement of intent. So I mean, what mm-hmm. is your intent? What is your, what's the politics behind this? Uh,
1: the politics behind it were to try to push back on some of these unacknowledged truisms surrounding digital education, like distance education is the second best. You know, that was one of the really important ones in the early days of the manifesto. I think our opening manifesto point is something like um, online can be the privileged mode. Mm. You know, distance is not second best. We wanted to just provoke people to think differently about that and not to fall back on this kind of default sedentarism, if you like, which is around, you know, the only proper education is education that takes place in a room with people looking into each other's eyes. You know what I mean? So we wanted to push back on that. Politically, I think the other essential um, point in the manifesto is the one which says something like, Uh, digital education need not be complicit with the instrumentalization of education because we were seeing back in 2010 and it's even probably even more the case now that digital is seen as being the way in which we can kind of amplify um, our reach in education without actually thinking about what the politics of that imply. Um, we can use technology to make education faster and um, cheaper and more accessible, and um, and we wanted to say to say no, you cannot instrumentalize technology in this way and make to make education better. To make education better, we have to think about what does it mean to be a teacher, what does it mean to be a student, and yeah, all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. So we wanted to push back really hard on that kind of instrumentalizing imperative that is such a driver still of policy.
0: And it's full of very kind of neat witty statements. I mean, my favorite is don't succumb to campus envy or we welcome our new robot colleagues. I mean, do you have a particular favorite?
1: Actually, my favorite is the one about instrumentalization, um, but I do like, I do like don't succumb to campus envy because that was, that came out of a one year project. It was you know, quite a big project where we talked to distance students about the ways in which the campus was symbolically important to them, even though they would never come. Um, and that work was just so rich and students' connection with the campus was so profound, Mm. even though they never had any intention of coming, um, that we kind of developed this idea of campus envy, of this kind of idea that even though this isn't the case for distance students, there is this kind of perception that presence on campus is the kind of touchstone of academic authenticity. And I was very, so proud in the manifesto when we managed to summarise our whole research project in one little snippy kind of line, don't exactly. <laughs> succumb to Campus Envy. Yeah, also with a little reference to Freud there as well. So it was, yeah, that's probably one of my favourites. Well, I wanted to talk to you about,
0: how, I mean, you practising what you preach and you've mentioned your master's in digital education. And what are the most pleasing aspects of being able to teach online and being able to kind of put your theory into practice?
1: Um, some of it, I think, is around the way it changes the way we think about assessment. For me, that's one of the most interesting things. So we say to students, look, you don't have to write 4,000 word essays for everything. You mm-hmm. can actually, you know, make us a video, write us a bit of code, design a game. I mean, obviously, some many disciplines do that in their anyway in the visual arts and so on. But in social sciences, it's quite rare um, to for people to experiment in that way with sort of multimodal assessment practices. And I think. Just the very fact of going online and suddenly you're in this massively kind of rich environment of sharing an image and so on, it encourages students to think really big about what the kind of um, quality markers of scholarship might be and to think about how we express those differently in mul- in kind of multimodal forms so that's one of the most interesting things and the other the other one i think is the kind of intimacy that you find with students when you're in this very different kind of temporality of working online yeah. so you can be responding to students on twitter yes you can be in the virtual learning environment on a discussion board but but you can also be in a a Skype conversation. You can be working on a shared document together. There are so many ways in which you can be part of the student's life and students can be part of a a network. And I I really enjoy that. And our students say, well, look, my experience of being on this distance programme has been a much higher level of intimacy and responsiveness than I ever had on campus.
0: Now, finally, finally, um, it's February 2020. Mm. You're the first UK academic that I've spoken to since Brexit actually happened. I mean, it doesn't look good from the outside, but I mean, are you able to find ways of actually being hopeful about the future of of higher education in the UK and the, the future of education research in the UK?
1: Yeah, I think I'm hopeful. It's going to be challenging. I think there are lots of discourses kind of working against um, against very critical perspectives on educational research at the moment, Edu- You know, but that has always been the case. And what I'm seeing, which does give me hope, are more kind of values-based approaches to thinking about institutional strategy, for example. So, uh, Edinburgh, we've just released our new sort of 2030 strategy, and it's based in a set of values. And I think people are talking more about that, which makes me think actually as a sector we're starting i hope to be able to tell better stories about what we think universities are for Mm. um and i think if we can do that then we'll find ourselves in a much stronger position when it comes to pushing back on some of the kind of more instrumentalizing kind of reductive kind of discourses that we're seeing you know driving expectations particularly around technology and education at the moment so i think we need that i think universities need to feel able to strongly articulate what they're for and hopefully this kind of massive cultural shock that Brexit has been will help us do that.
0: I'm sorry to end on a bum, I I try and kind of keep it light but (laughs)
1: it's
0: been great. great to have a chance to talk about the future of education, the future of higher education. I mean thanks ever so much for taking the time out to talk and good luck for the future.
1: Thanks Neil.